This is a Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Racial gerrymandering, deliberately drawing political maps to disempower voters of color, we mean black folks, is illegal. But in a South Carolina case, the U.S. Supreme Court seems poised to make racial gerrymandering almost impossible to prove. What could that mean for black voters in the state and around the country? It matters less that, you know, a party does or does not admit that they were acting or sorting people according to race. And what matters is uh, really the effects of what they were doing. The latest fight for voting rights coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The formal name of the case is Alexander versus the South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. But the issue at the heart of this dispute is old-fashioned racial gerrymandering, drawing political maps to give white voters disproportionate power over black folks. And many observers who witnessed recent Supreme Court arguments over the case feel the conservative majority of justices think that's just fine. What would that mean for disenfranchised black voters in South Carolina and around the country? Joining us to talk about that is Brandon Tensley. He's the national politics reporter for Capital B News, a nonprofit news organization focusing on issues that impact African-Americans. Brandon Tensley, welcome to A Word. Thank you so much for having me. So most people in America do not follow what's happening with the Supreme Court. Tell us sort of briefly about this most recent case dealing with South Carolina. So this case is really focusing on, or one of the districts that it's focusing on in South Carolina is Congressional District 1. And so a three-judge panel back in January said that South Carolina Republicans had expelled about 30,000 Black voters from this district. So Black voters in Charleston County from this district and moved them to the 6th district. Uh, And that's a district that James Clyburn, who is a Black Democrat, He's represented that district since 1993. And so what that panel said was that this change uh, diluted the political power of Black voters by packing them into certain areas. And so that's a term that we hear a lot uh, when people are discussing uh, gerrymandering, uh, sort of this idea of packing and cracking. So putting minority voters into uh, a limited number of areas and or splitting these communities so that they can't vote as a more unified voting block. How did the plaintiffs in the case try to show that this was a racial gerrymander as opposed to a partisan gerrymander? Because the argument is always like, hey, we weren't moving black people. We were moving Democrats. It just happens that these black folks happen to all be Democrats. So how did the plaintiffs show that this was racial, not just partisan? So this is actually the, the crux of the case is how do you make that distinction? Because, uh, you know, it's it, the, the Supreme Court has basically said that it's OK to engage in gerrymandering if it's for partisan goals, uh, but it's illegal to engage in obviously racial discrimination 
or racial gerrymandering. And so the state, of course, is saying that, you know, oh, we were just thinking about our own partisan goals. We were thinking about Republicans. However, the challengers are saying that, you know, not only in the South, but especially in the South, it's really difficult and almost impossible to disentangle race and partisanship. I would say that backing is especially stark when you get into southern states. And so, you know, if you go back to the 2016 election, South Carolina was sort of part of that region that people would call Clinton country. In the 2020 election, you know, Joe Biden basically was sort of not performing very well until we got to the South Carolina primary and black voters were like, yo, let's show up for Joe. So it is very, very, very difficult to disentangle party um, in race in South Carolina. And uh, basically by saying that you're, even if you are targeting black voters, what South Carolina Republicans are hoping to accomplish is by saying like, oh, well, because these are essentially proxies for each other, if we say that we're doing this in service of partisanship, that'll give us cover from the Supreme Court. Whereas obviously if you say that you were targeting black voters, that would not. So that's really the heart of the issue. How were the justices responding to these kinds of arguments and and why does that have people concerned? I can imagine that their responses to these arguments were pretty critical and or they were just ignoring them, right? The justices responded, I think, in the ways that you would expect. Uh, So the Republican nominated justices kept pushing the challengers on, well, do you have direct proof? Do you have direct evidence uh, that black voters were being targeted because of their race, as opposed to black voters were affected because of their partisan affiliations, their political affiliation? And so John Roberts was asking that question and was really pushing the challengers on where's the direct proof. Uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, on the other hand, and the other liberal justices kept saying that we cannot expect people to have a smoking gun in this instance uh, when we're talking about a district like this. That's not a majority minority district. Essentially, it boiled down to we can look at the effects of what was happening. It matters less that, you know, a party does or does not admit that they were acting or sorting people according to race. And what matters is uh, really the effects of what they were doing. And the effects show that more than 30,000 black people were moved. And so it's it's looking less at sort of the direct evidence um, and it's looking more at what were the consequences of these actions. And so that's really how the justices sort of broke down on the issue during oral arguments. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago when people who actually care about justice and equality in this country were praising the Supreme Court for adding another majority black district, congressional district to Alabama. So what's going on here? How is the same court saying, hey, Alabama, you've got enough black people that you really should have two majority black congressional districts. But on the other hand, in South Carolina, like, eh, you know, we don't mind if you stuff everybody into one place as long as Clyburn's happy and, and we can use this to knock down other things. What's what's the difference in these cases? Right. No, that's a great question because, you know, these are both cases, the Alabama case, Allen v. Milligan and the South Carolina case are sort of broadly under the umbrella of voting rights, but they sort of center on different questions. And so the Alabama case was a Voting Rights Act case. And so Alabama Republicans were told uh, that they likely violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, which protects against racial vote dilution. And, you know, anyone who is a court watcher has probably seen Alabama Republicans resist uh, that order from the Supreme Court. 
um, you know, in recent months, and uh, a federal court eventually approved a new map uh, saying that you need to add <laughs> this second majority black uh, district or a black opportunity district. Uh, the South Carolina case uh, sort of hinges on slightly different questions, um, and it's looking at the difference between a permissible partisan goal and an illegal racial gerrymander. And so both, you know, fall under this umbrella of voting rights, uh, but they're looking at different questions about uh, how voting rights are affected. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on the South Carolina voting rights case. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the South Carolina voting rights case with Brandon Tinsley of Capital B News. So, Brandon, on Slate's Amicus podcast, they recently interviewed Taiwan Scott, an individual plaintiff in this case. Here's a bit of what he had to say. I want to play this and get your thoughts on the other side. I mean, I sat at the trial for eight days uh, in Charleston and just just heard um, just the blatant disregard for for my people and for my culture. Um, it was as though we don't even exist. Um, I mean, it, it's sad to see that um, that's the the mentality and the attitude. That's just, it's just it was just blatant. Like, um, like, again, we're, we're a part of this, this historical area here and, um, our concerns don't even matter. Here's the thing. And I, I think this is key. Brandon, I'm not from South Carolina. Okay. But I did some political consulting down there. So I know a bit about how South Carolina operates. I know the low country is different than the, than the, the PV and, and different parts of the state, et cetera, et cetera. But you're from there. So talk a little bit more about the communities that are being directly impacted by this kind of Supreme Court decision. Because I think a lot of times what people don't understand in the South is that these states often have 30, 40% African-American populations, and yet somehow you have very few statewide elected officials who are black. Um, the Democratic Party tends to be a blacks-only party, and the Republican Party tends to be a whites-only party. So talk a little bit about the communities that are affected by this this potential ruling. So Taiwan Scott is um, a resident of Hilton Head, which is uh, in that first congressional district uh, that's in question, uh, that's in Charleston County. And, you know, just for a little bit of context, uh, Charleston County is the third most populous county in South Carolina. I think it has just more than about 408,000 residents. So it's behind Richland County, which is where I'm from, uh, where Columbia, the capital is, and behind Greenville County, which is the largest, most populous county. And so the issues that Taiwan Scott has been bringing up and really sounding the alarm about are things like heirs' property, that sort of inheritance of uh, land or a home down through the generations, but without sort of a formal will or something, some sort of legal 
documentation. He's also talked about, you know, the expansion of an airport in the area that would displace a Black church that was established in the 1880s. So it's disregard for Black institutions, a disregard for some of these issues that affect Black people. And I think what's really important about what Taiwan Scott has been talking about is this raises the fact that there are real material stakes um, and involved here. I think often when we're talking about something like redistricting or gerrymandering, uh, we talk in the sort of important but vague, more abstract notions of fair representation. But what, what a lot of sources have told me is that this also affects people in a very material way. So it affects whether people have roads, uh, new roads in their in their communities, whether they have hospitals in their communities, what school funding looks like, what criminal justice reform looks like. So there are very real material stakes that are bound up with the decisions that are made by the Supreme Court in addition to these issues of fair representation. And so I'm glad uh, that we were able to hear from him because he really lays out that this isn't just about numbers. You know, it is about numbers, uh, but it is also about the life that people are able to live. One of the significant changes over the last, say, 15 years or so is that we're seeing a difference in generations of how Black people look at these kinds of issues, right? So in your experience in doing this reporting, how are, say, baby boomer black folks, how are older black people, maybe even, you know, greatest generation if they're still around, how are older African-Americans in South Carolina looking at this case compared to Zoomers or young millennials? Because, you know, there's organizers all throughout the ages. You know, you got your, your, your old men and women who are like, hey, I'm still knocking on doors. I'm taking a busload of seniors to vote. And, and then you have your sort of young organizers and activists. Are they in the same place about this case? Is one group more cynical than the other? What's the difference? I think one of the biggest differences that I've seen in this case generationally is sort of the issues that people are really elevating. Some of those material stakes that I was talking about a little bit earlier. So for instance, when some of the younger people I've talked to, when they've talked about what's on their mind with this case, one of the things they've pointed up is, for instance, climate change, climate justice, environmental justice. And, you know, it's not saying that older Black folks don't care about these issues, uh, but, you know, as younger generations have to contend more with climate change and living with the effects of climate change, we've seen that become a more salient political issue. So, you know, when we're talking about a place like Charleston County along the coast, you know, a place that will be more acutely affected by the effects of climate change. This is tied in with the fact that Black voters in these areas, they want a representative who empathizes with the effects of climate change, how this will affect people in areas that are low income, that are already financially burdened, and who will feel the effects of climate change more acutely than people elsewhere in the state. When I talk to my parents, uh, you know, my mom recently turned 70, when I talk to them about these issues, um, you know, climate change isn't something that uh, is at the forefront of their mind. Um, they might be talking more about just the right to vote. They might be talking more about sort of their own experiences uh, under Jim Clyburn. They might be talking more about sort of the legacy of voting rights in a state like South Carolina. Um, so it's looking at sort of this broad sweep of voting rights versus uh, maybe looking at some of these political issues that are you know, maybe my parents didn't have to contend with, um, you know, my parents aren't South Carolinians, but you know, they've lived in South Carolina for years and years and years at this point. Um, and so they're not really thinking about some of the issues that, uh, you know, Zoomers, uh, that some of the younger generations are really saying like, hey, like, 
we can't talk about redistricting. We can't talk about voting rights. We can't talk about fair representation unless we're talking about these other issues too. All of these issues are really bound up together. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about voting rights with Brandon Tinsley of Capital B. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Brandon Tinsley of Capital B News. So um, we've been focused today on the South Carolina case, but I mean, look, all across the country, voting rights are under attack. What are some other hotspots right now? What are some places that we also need to be paying attention? Tied to the Alabama case is the Louisiana case. Um, So Louisiana is going through its own sort of um, back and forth right now with the courts trying to add another majority black congressional district. In some ways, the numbers are even more stark in Louisiana, where black voters make up 33% of the voting age population, but have only had one of the six congressional districts be black opportunity districts. So they're going through their own challenges, legal challenges right now. Earlier this year, the North Carolina Supreme Court brought back a 2018 uh, voter ID law um, Uh, that had previously been ruled um, unconstitutional. Um, It also gave the green light for an extreme partisan gerrymander that will really benefit uh, the Republican Party in the state. Um, Ohio is going through its own map legal challenges. One of my sources, I was talking to him recently about uh, the importance of independent redistricting commission, taking this process out of the hands of uh, elected officials and putting it in the hands of a broad array of citizens who are more likely to take, for instance, public feedback into consideration when they're drawing uh, these district maps. So that's an issue that's going on um, in Ohio right now. People are trying to collect enough signatures uh, to put this issue to a ballot and a ballot vote in 2024. Florida is going through um, its own uh, redistricting challenges. Georgia, I mean, it really is happening all across the state. And I will actually point you to a report card that recently came out by a coalition of voting rights groups that actually grades every single state on their redistricting efforts. Uh, So the highest grade uh, was given to California, Massachusetts, some of these states that we talked about, it's no surprise that they got Fs. uh, So Alabama, Florida, uh, I think Louisiana, Louisiana got a D minus, South Carolina got a D plus, Uh, they're not performing well. Um, But I think when you look at something like that, that really sort of lays out the extent of these challenges, uh, you see that redistricting this issue of fair maps, this issue of access to public resources is something that is affecting people all across the country. I have asked a variation of this question to so many people, and now I'm going to ask this of you. What the heck is Joe Biden doing? Like, what is the Department of Justice doing? I hear the NAACP with this case. I hear about local activists and organizers. I hear about, you know, uh, elected officials and, and, and the Stacey Abrams of the world and the Black Votes Matter and everything else like that. What the heck is the administration doing? Because isn't their job to be active and progressive? And there's some great people in the DOJ, but isn't it their job to be going after these cases? That is one of the things that a lot of my sources are sort of frustrated with, right, is these issues, these cases don't seem like they're getting enough attention on the federal level. I mean, of course, all you really get is sort of the boilerplate language uh, you hear about the importance of voting rights. And you hear people talk about, you know, the sanctity of the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, but in terms of actually 
protecting these rights, you hear a lot of frustration because what a lot of activists um, and voting rights groups hear is silence uh, when it comes to this. And, you know, I mean, we can go into talking about the the seeming impossibility of passing federal legislation that protects voting rights because of the the split um, in, or, you know, the sort of like narrow leads that Democrats have um, in Congress. And, you know, I think voting rights groups are sympathetic to that. Uh, but you also hear them talk a lot about, you know, it's not enough just to tell Black people vote harder, right? Black people are voting as hard as possible. Black people continue to be the backbone of the Democratic Party, but it's hard to vote harder when you have legislators in these state houses who are drawing maps that make it difficult as possible uh, to actually vote. You know, I don't have a clear-cut answer for you besides um, I can tell you what my sources are telling me, which is they want the administration to do more. Uh, they want federal institutions to do more to protect the voting rights that they say that they care so much about. You know, here we are, we're heading into 2024. And the worst case scenario where the Supreme Court says, any kind of gerrymandering is fine, as long as you say it's about red and blue instead of black and white. How could that impact 2024? We already know where South Carolina is going to vote. We already know how Louisiana is going to vote. But Louisiana did have a Democratic governor till fairly recently. Um, you know, Georgia is a state that Joe Biden only won by a certain number of votes. So what could be the, the consequences of this if it goes bad? I mean, that is the sort of the key question um, in so many of these conversations. This could affect the number of seats uh, that Democrats have in the House, right? So the House is already narrowly divided. Um, and when you look at uh, the different states where there are these legal challenges to maps, you know, we're talking about uh, Alabama, South Carolina, uh, Georgia, Louisiana, New York. But depending on how the Supreme Court decides uh, some of these uh, key cases, that can affect the number of seats that we have in the House, right? Which, um, of course, then affects the ability of certain legislation to be passed. Uh, so it has very real consequences on a national level. And I think part of the concern that people have with a case like uh, what we're seeing with South Carolina, you know, thus far, I would say that the South Carolina case is still somewhat early days as far as the Supreme Court term goes. It's not getting as much attention as the Alabama case got. Um, and I think part of that is the Alabama case was tied to the Voting Rights Act, uh, something that is maybe a little bit more powerful in people's imagination. But what is potentially so terrifying about the South Carolina case is how depending on how the Supreme Court decides, it could essentially give carte blanche to Republicans across the country to basically try out this different tactic. Uh, we can find ways to discriminate against Black voters and have it be okay, as long as we're saying that we're doing it for partisan goals. Um, and also, we can throw up our hands and say, it's not our fault that Black people are affected. It's not our fault that Black people happen to vote for the Democratic Party, which we could go into and say, like, well, I mean, we can look at the very specific reasons for why Black people support the Democratic Party in overwhelming numbers, going back and looking at history of party realignment and all that stuff. Uh, but, you know, there, there are so many uh, key issues and questions around democracy and representation and access uh, that are tied up with cases like what we're seeing in South Carolina uh, that both affect people on um, a sort of a broad national level, but then also will affect people in, you know, when it comes to their day-to-day -day lives. And so that's why, at least for me, you know, I'm a little biased, uh, you know, having grown up in South Carolina, 
uh, to pay attention to this case. But that's also why I keep telling people this actually is a really important case to keep an eye on, um, because it could uh, give an indication of tactics that legislators might use in the future to discriminate against Black people. I don't know another way that you can really put that. When you're talking to activists, or even just from your own research and working, what can somebody listening to the show right now in Michigan do? What can somebody listening to the show right now in Oregon, in California, in places where you don't necessarily have these kinds of problems? What can they do to help? What can they do to to be active or engaged citizens? Organizing works. We do see that effective organizing does yield positive results when it comes to shaming legislators into drawing maps uh, that are more accurate and that more fairly represent marginalized groups, marginalized voters. Independent redistricting commissions also um, are effective when it comes to granting people more accurate representation. And so, you know, as really impossible as some of these issues seem. At the end of the day, good old-fashioned organizing, good old-fashioned sort of participating in these different conversations. If there are public hearings where you live, um, going to those, making your voice heard, those things actually can yield positive results for Black voters. So that is something that, you know, I keep thinking about um, as I'm writing these stories. This issue seems so impossible, but we find that some of these tried and true methods actually are effective. Brandon Tinsley is a national politics reporter for Capital B News. Thanks so much for joining me today on A Word. Thank you. And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is awordatslate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.